Now, going back to the uh, Hollywood theory of the romantic art thief, these people do not treat the artwork very well. Criminals are not art lovers. They couldn't care less about the art itself. They will steal from their own mother. They will steal your wallet. They, they, they just don't care. It's all about the money and how quickly they can convert the stolen object to cash. There's no romance involved. It's totally a Hollywood creation. Very rarely does somebody contact me out of the goodness of their heart and say, you know, this is just wrong. It may start out that way, but after a while, they're like, oh, by the way, uh, is there a finder's fee involved in this? You know, I get husbands ratting out their wives and wives ratting out their husbands. You always find out their true motivation, and it usually comes down to money. I'm Sayward Darby. And I'm Ariel Ramchandani. Welcome to No Place Like Home. Episode 7, Very Accomplished Thieves. When we started reporting this story three years ago, right after the ruby slippers were recovered, the FBI kept telling us the whole thing would be wrapped up soon. There would be answers to all our questions, like who stole the slippers? And where were they for 13 years? There might even be criminal charges. For several months, Ariel contacted the FBI every week for updates on the investigation. You know, we've been in touch now, I think, since uh, fall of 2018. Um, I think you were my first email. I'm a former journalist myself and had great interest in my media career in, in telling stories. I think all of us as journalists, that's what we do. That's what we love is to tell stories. And um, I can't wait for this one to be told when it's all said and done. That's Kevin Smith, the FBI public affairs officer in Minneapolis. We know each other pretty well. I told him when I had a baby and we checked on each other during the pandemic. But since we first connected, the FBI has never announced any breaks in the case or publicly said who may have been involved in the crime. Today, the ruby slippers are still in the FBI's possession. The Bureau says they're evidence in an active criminal investigation. This is still a very, very active and ongoing investigation, so we'll be fairly limited in what we can say today. Due to the fact this is an ongoing and active investigation, it's FBI policy to not speak about active investigations in any way to so we don't compromise the, the investigation. So that's why we are so tight-lipped, not only on Ruby Slippers, but any of our active cases, we simply uh, do not offer uh, any facts about the case as we're investigating it. So we had to do our own detective work, and we got a tip about where to start. In October 2018, I visited Grand Rapids for the first time. John Minor, the founder of the Judy Garland Museum, picked me up in his Mercedes and drove me around town. We talked about the case. At one point, he told me to check out something called the Rockwell Heist. He winked as he said it, like he was telling me a secret. So when I got back to my hotel, I downloaded a book about it. The Rockwell Heist happened in Minneapolis in February 1978. 
Thieves working for Miami mobsters broke into a small gallery and stole several paintings, including seven by Norman Rockwell, the American artist famous for his cover illustrations in the Saturday Evening Post. Police never caught the thieves, but a few decades later, a local crime reporter thought he had a good shot at solving the case. Well, there was a small universe of very accomplished thieves here in Minneapolis at that time, and I knew some of them, and I knew about them. This is Bruce Rubenstein, author of The Rockwell Heist, the book I downloaded at my hotel. We met Rubenstein in Minneapolis, and he explained how he got to know some of the major players in the city's crime scene. I had some trouble when I was young. I came across the border in Laredo, Texas, with a pocket full of weed. Dumb me. So I got sent to Sandstone Prison, which is about 100 miles north of here. They gave me five years, but I was out in 20 months. You know, walking around the yard, I just got to know a lot of guys who were involved in crime, obviously, because they were in prison. And then I kept up some of those relationships when I started writing about crime. Rubenstein made two friends behind bars who happened to be master thieves. One of them was an expert lockbreaker who'd once worked in Las Vegas. He was a very dexterous guy. I'd watch him in prison. He had a deck of cards in his hand, and you know how you shuffle cards. He'd do it with one hand, and then he'd deal the cards out. The other guy Rubenstein hung out with was a made man someone who's been formally initiated into the mob. When they weren't in prison, the made man and the lockbreaker worked together, staging robberies with various associates. They would work as a team. When the mob wanted somebody to steal a coin collection, some expensive furs, other stuff like that, where they would get hired for a price. When Rubenstein started reporting his book about the Rockwell heist, he learned that one of the people involved was his old friend, the made man. Another was a guy named Kent Anderson, who also ran in criminal circles. Kent came from a big family with 11 kids. You might be familiar with one of them. His brother, Louis Anderson, a stand-up comedian and star of the TV show Baskets. Ladies and gentlemen, you might know him from Baskets. Please give it up for Mr. Louis Anderson. I'm not the first celebrity in our house. My brother... The safe cracker. He was the first celebrity. <laughs> I remember I was 10 years old, something like that. And the FBI came to our house. And that's a weird thing right there. You know, because the FBI, you just don't think they're going to show up. You just. <laughs> Louis Anderson's brother Kent died in 2007. By all accounts, whatever trouble he got into, including the Rockwell heist, Kent was a likable guy. Well, he was a very effusive, outgoing guy, handsome guy, sort of a well-known rogue and guy about town. And uh, so he was around doing things, hanging out with sketchy people on the edges of their deals, and everybody liked him, so he'd be in on that stuff. And he did do some fencing Fence is a word you hear a lot in discussions about art crime. A fence is a middleman who moves, or fences, stolen property between thieves and buyers, often by disguising its origins. But unloading stolen art is hard, and the more recognizable a piece is, 
the more difficult it is to sell. It's possible that Kent Anderson tried to fence the Rockwell paintings to a buyer, but it didn't work. So at some point, the thieves asked an attorney to help them. They wanted to return the paintings and get a reward. Lawyers help because they know how to talk, and they can also talk to the insurance people who have to come up with the money. But when I was first trying to figure out who actually did that job, a guy I talked to here, a well-known lawyer here, told me he had been contacted by some, some people to be an intermediary. Obviously, they were the people who stole it. And he checked with the Board of Professional Responsibilities and said, I've got an opportunity to help recover this art, and I want to know if it's going to be kosher for me to do that. And they took it under advisement and got back to him and said, we can't give you any specific advice, but we can tell you that somebody tried to do this in Ohio and they ended up in the penitentiary. So he told me that was it for me. So I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. He was a very successful criminal lawyer. He still is. Rubenstein's book was published in 2013. He named Kent Anderson as one of four thieves in the Rockwell heist. He didn't name the other three men, because they were still alive. Five years later, Rubenstein got a surprise visit at home. It was from an FBI agent who wanted to talk about the Rockwell heist but only in relation to another case. The agent was investigating the theft of the ruby slippers. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, the first thing that happened was a film company approached me and said, we just read your book, and we'd like to talk to you. And I thought, oh, great. I sold my book to the films. And uh, I said, sure. They met me at a coffee shop in Minneapolis, and it's all about the ruby slippers, which, to tell you the truth, I had paid literally no attention to. I knew the ruby slippers had been stolen. Then another odd thing happened. My wife and I are sitting there one evening. There came a call, and he said, Hi, I'm so-and-so from the FBI, and I'd like to talk to you. And I said, Well, what about? And he said, Well, to be honest, I just read your book, and I'm interested in it. I said, I'll come in the lobby. The FBI agent who visited Bruce Rubenstein that night in 2018 indicated that there might be a connection between the Rockwell heist and the theft of the ruby slippers. And I said, I don't, you know, I didn't pay much attention to the ruby slippers. And he said, you have some information we're interested in. 
And I said, well, what's in it for me? And they said, we'll help you in ways that will be of interest to you as a writer. I'd like to make an arrangement for you to come out to the FBI building here in Minneapolis. And when I arrived there, down at one end is the head of communications from the FBI who had flown in from Washington. And another agent, plus the one who had the head of the task force, and a fourth guy who was the head of communications in the Twin Cities here, and he gave me his card, and he says, I'm at your disposal anytime. And the guy from Washington says, and here's the, the big payoff. We're going to show you the ruby slippers. And he's got this box. And he calls me over, and I look inside this box, and there are the ruby slippers. And I thought, actually, so what, you know? They wouldn't even tell me how they got the ruby slippers back, which would have made a story. But they said, well, we can't talk about that. <laughs> so what could they do? They could show me the ruby slippers. So that's what they did. And then they said, how would you like to be a confidential human source? As much as I'd been messing around with crime stories, I didn't know what that was until another FBI guy told me that means they wanted you to wear a wire and try and incriminate Joe Friedberg. Joe Friedberg is a prominent figure, a Minneapolis fixture, one of the city's most famous criminal defense attorneys. Friedberg started practicing law in 1966, and he's represented all kinds of defendants. In his own words, some horrible people. He's tried over 300 cases and has been called a patriarch of criminal defense in the Twin Cities. Friedberg is in the news all the time talking about big legal stories. The local CBS station even has its own tag for articles featuring him. But Rubenstein didn't know Friedberg by reputation only. He knew the man himself. He'd met him while writing about a murder case. Rubenstein had also interviewed him for his book. Friedberg was the criminal defense attorney contacted by the thieves responsible for the Rockwell heist, the one who told Rubenstein he wouldn't touch that situation with a 10-foot pole. And when I wrote this story, I talked to Joe Friedberg several times. And we knew each other over the years. And when the Rockwell heist came out, I did some readings of the book. And he talked about some of these mobsters to relatively large crowds. You know, so we got to be friendly. Also, he owned racehorses for a while. And I wrote about horse racing a little bit. It sounded to Rubenstein like the FBI suspected Friedberg in the Slippers case, which didn't make sense to him. Friedberg represented people who broke the law, but he wasn't a criminal. And then they said, we would like your cooperation. I said, I understand, but I'm not going to help you. And they, they called and texted, and they would leave me alone for about two weeks, and then they quit. Even if I was willing, what would he say? He didn't have anything to do with it. He made a lot of money as a lawyer. He's not some guy that's wondering where his next meal's coming from. He's not like that at all. But here's the thing. Law enforcement was very interested in Friedberg. In our reporting, his name came up again and again. And we weren't alone. 
A Washington Post piece in 2019 mentioned Friedberg in connection with the slipper's return. In a case where so much was unknown, Friedberg was the one thing that a lot of people seemed to agree on. They were sure he was involved, somehow. We called Friedberg to ask what he knew about the case. He answered the phone, but he didn't say much. You are? Um, I'm a reporter. I'm looking at a podcast about the Ruby Slippers. Okay. I don't think uh, I'm going to answer any questions on that. Um, Is there anything that you would be able to tell me about those slippers? Nope. So we had to look elsewhere for clues. And one of the things we learned, thanks to property records, is that Friedberg has a condominium in Jensen Beach on the eastern coast of Florida. In past episodes, we've talked about the former government agent who called police in Grand Rapids in 2017 and said he knew where the ruby slippers were. He even sent photos of them. We didn't know his name, but we knew where he was located, so we've been calling him Florida Man. We also knew from Detective Brian Matson that Florida Man initiated conversations about returning the slippers because he ran into someone he knew, someone he later introduced to law enforcement. Two people bumping into each other from the past, and sounds like an opportunity came up and people jumped on board. We found a partial list of residents in the complex where Friedberg has a condo. One of them is a retired Secret Service agent. It could be an innocent coincidence, but we wondered if that was Florida Man, and if he could be the link between Friedberg and the Slippers case. Hello? Hello. Hi. Um, my name is Arielle. I called you a few weeks ago. I'm a reporter working on a podcast. I said I didn't want to talk to you about it. I'm not going to talk to you about it, but you're free to ask any questions you like. Um, is there anything you would feel comfortable talking about with me? Well, I think the Twins play the White Sox again tonight, and I would be willing to discuss that. And after that call, he stopped answering. The call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Hi, Mr. Friedberg. It's Ariel. I was hoping we could catch up. Um, so yeah, feel free to call me back at this number, 646 Rubenstein told us he did ask Friedberg personally if he knew anything about the slippers. Friedberg gave him an attorney's answer. He doesn't want to talk about her. Get, you know, I mean, he's taking his own advice. That's what a criminal lawyer tells you. Don't talk to anybody can't possibly do you any good, and it might do you some harm. The further we went down this road, the more confident we were that Friedberg knew something, and possibly a lot, about the ruby slippers. But we also knew that law enforcement didn't think he was the person who actually broke into the Judy Garland Museum. So if he wasn't the thief, how did he become part of the story? When an object is recovered after a few decades... Most commonly, it's been circulating in some sort of crime syndicate as a way of exchanging value. So instead of having to smuggle 100,000 euros worth of currency to pay some other member of the, the crime syndicate, you can just give them this neat little package of a painting. This is Erin Thompson, a professor at John Jay College in New York. She's one of several experts we spoke to who explained that with art crime, there's often more to the story than the theft itself. There can be a lot of hands involved, in a lot of different ways. 
they are recovered after a while by insurance companies when someone comes forward and claims a reward for return. And often we think, especially in Europe where insurance companies offer this no questions asked reward, works are stolen precisely to, at a later point, claim this reward. In other words, a reward can be a perverse incentive. That's why in the United States, things are a little different. Here, there are more restrictions on who can get reward money and how. We get contacted by people that say, look, we know where these objects are, uh, or we've taken them, or you know, a friend of mine knows where they are, whatever they, their story is. And we will tell you, provided you pay us. This is Chris Marinello, an attorney who runs a company called Art Recovery International. You also heard him at the beginning of the episode. It's his job to find lost and stolen art, so he deals with a lot of people who want money in exchange for information. So it's not legal to offer a reward in every jurisdiction. When it is allowable, rewards are payable to those who have no connection to the theft. Usually that's up to law enforcement to tell us after they, they, they've done their investigative work that uh, the person who has the object had no connection whatsoever to the, to the original theft. So I've seen almost every scenario where the criminals try to find somebody to stand in for them. Because thieves can't claim reward money, they sometimes ask for help in exchange for a commission. These people were successful in other endeavors like this. And the next question was, how much is the reward? Eventually, one by one, sources told us a similar story. The reason the FBI was interested in Friedberg was actually really simple. It was because he was at the sting in Minneapolis. He was the lawyer, the one Florida man introduced to police, the man who got up to use the bathroom, leaving the ruby slippers unattended. I couldn't believe it. He left the slipper sitting on a countertop and went down the hall and used the bathroom. Who does that, right? He knew he could be in trouble, but he thought he had a loophole around it. The FBI didn't have cause to arrest Friedberg at the sting. But if agents' interaction with Rubenstein is any indicator, the Bureau was still hoping to find something on Friedberg. For his part, Friedberg always insisted to law enforcement that he was just helping. And he did give the FBI a name. Oh, he told us who stole him. Almost right off the bat, he knew exactly what he's doing. The person Friedberg said stole the ruby slippers from Grand Rapids. Those slippers had power. How much is the reward? Whoever stole them. Oh, it's Michael Shaw. He did. The director tried to implicate me. They gotta be in the pit. They gotta be in the pit. Was really seeking that power. It was one of the thieves from the Rockwell heist. I think the crime of stealing these slippers, I'm not going to say mimic, uh, I'm trying to think of a word here. I think that the uh, way this crime went down, it is much like that, which was happening with other um, art theft, where organized crime may have been involved. So, yeah, are we talking like the Rockwell heist? That's come up. Here's Detective Bob Stein from the Grand Rapids Police. Our chief of police, uh, Scott Johnson, has been in law enforcement for 30-some years. He remembers a lot of stuff that happened down there. And after the shoes were recovered, there was a name that was brought up, which I'm not going to use. And he's like, 
I heard that name before. And so he went on the internet, and the next thing you know, that name was connected to another name that was also involved in the slippers. We also talked to Detective Brian Matson about it. This person that was named to have uh, done this was an experienced criminal. A master thief? Yeah. We asked Rubenstein which master thief the police might be talking about. After all, he's the expert. He learned the identities of all the players in the Rockwell heist when he was writing his book. It turned out there was a story to how that happened, one that might be relevant to our reporting. Rubenstein had a source, a former prosecutor, who helped him confirm the thieves' names. And Rubenstein told us that in return for that confirmation, the source had a strange request. This one prosecutor told me he knew who stole the Rockwell paintings. And he said, well, you seem to know how to get some information. I'm interested in the ruby slippers. Can you find out anything about the ruby slippers worth knowing? The prosecutor was asking specifically about the slippers stolen from Grand Rapids. Eager to solve the Rockwell heist, Rubenstein started asking his contacts what they knew. And he reached out to a cousin who traced stolen cars and had police contacts in Los Angeles. And he told me, I can tell you one thing I know about the ruby slippers that I think is accurate. And here it is. There was a person in the film industry, a well-known producer, also a well-known gay man, who was crazy to get those ruby slippers. And he was contacted and told that in the Brentwood area of Los Angeles, there's an address and there's a garage behind that address. And if you go there at a certain time, you can look at the ruby slippers and we will tell you how much it will cost you to acquire them. And this guy went there and looked at what he said looked to him like the ruby slippers and was asked to pay what he considered to be an outlandish price for him and was pissed off. And he tried to make a deal and they wouldn't come down and he left and told the cops. And the cops maybe followed up or, you know, whatever. And nothing ever came of it. If this really happened, it means the shoes stolen from the Judy Garland Museum were at some point in California where the thieves were trying to fence them. In a way, it makes sense. If there was a place where a lot of people would be interested in owning the most famous prop from probably the most famous movie of all time, it was Los Angeles. But a massive price tag might not have been the reason that a sale didn't happen. The fence might not have been convincing. Here's Aaron Thompson, the art crime expert. The ruby slippers is such an interesting case because there are multiple pairs of them. So I would really want to know, did the thieves think that they could advertise the ones they had as another pair? You know, say, don't worry, these aren't the stolen ones. These are another pair that has happened to come onto the market. Because it might be a flimsy story, but really people who want to own something are satisfied with the most flimsy, the most absurd of stories. Rubenstein thought that whoever was responsible for taking the slippers might have been part of the same crew that stole the Rockwalls. They had the skills, 
and they also had connections to organized crime in Minnesota and elsewhere. Maybe someone had ordered the theft. Rubenstein asked around, and he heard a rumor. I thought that these thieves that I knew in Minneapolis probably did it. I also heard that they were all set to do it in a very, very surreptitious and high-tech way, and they walked up to the door and found out it was open or something. Well, you know, not just anybody could have done it in this high-tech way they were contemplating to do it. Anybody could have walked into that museum and walked out with those slippers. So which thief did Friedberg name? As it turned out, there was only one possibility— we knew that Friedberg gave the name of someone who was dead. You know, the guy's dead now, so we can't interview him. And in 2018, based on public records, three of the thieves were still alive. Only Kent Anderson was dead. My brother, the safecracker. We asked various sources if Anderson was who Friedberg named. And they said yes. We found Anderson's 2007 obituary online. He was 72 when he died. The obituary mentions his beloved cat, Axel, and it describes attire at his memorial service as Hawaiian shirt optional. We reached out to his widow, hoping to learn more about him, but she didn't call us back. A representative for his brother, Louis Anderson, said the comedian wasn't available to comment. Let's assume Friedberg is right, that he wasn't naming Anderson just because he was dead, and that Anderson really was involved in the theft of the ruby slippers. That doesn't mean he acted alone. Anderson was 70 at the time of the crime, and according to Rubenstein, in the crew he ran with, Anderson was usually a lookout. Well, Ken Anderson was a different type of guy entirely, kind of a comic like his brother Louis, and he hung out with various kinds of characters, including gangsters. He might be the kind of guy that could have known about the ruby slippers. I mean, those other guys, they never heard of the ruby slippers. And they wouldn't be caught dead watching The Wizard of Oz. You know, Ken Anderson, his brother was in show business. You know, he knew what the ruby slippers were. And I suppose he knew that they were quite valuable. That night in August 2005, other people may have been there. And whoever plotted the theft, it's possible they already had a lay of the land, a sense of Grand Rapids, and of the Judy Garland Museum. We've always wondered if there was a local connection. The way the theft happened makes it impossible not to. And some members of law enforcement have the same hunch. When we sat down with Bob Stein in the spring of 2021, he really wanted to talk about this topic the idea that someone local may have been involved. It was exactly what people in Grand Rapids had always feared, that someone they knew, a neighbor, a friend, a colleague, had something to do with the theft. My personal theory, after looking at this for some time, is there's somebody who knows Grand Rapids or lives in Grand Rapids that uh, helped facilitate how to get the slippers out. The city of Grand Rapids and myself as the supervisor for the investigators had determined that we would not discuss any of the investigative material until the FBI is done with their investigation. 
But personally, I still believe that uh, fact is going to be stranger than fiction. So let's take a step back. Here's what we know for sure and what hasn't been reported before now. Joe Friedberg, star criminal defense attorney, returned the ruby slippers. And he told the FBI that Kent Anderson, a thief in the Rockwell heist and brother of comedian Louis Anderson, was the original thief. Now we want to talk about what might have led up to that point, what might have transpired between 2005 when the slippers disappeared and 2018 when they came back. Based on everything we know, it's likely that the slippers went into an underground network, a kind of black market where thieves and people who pay thieves exchange stolen property. Maybe the slippers changed hands several times, either as currency or because people were hoping to eventually make money off them. And maybe they took a detour to a garage in California. At some point, we know they wound up with someone who had a connection to Florida. Someone who heard about the million-dollar reward and knew that the statute of limitations on the theft had expired in Minnesota. Maybe it was Friedberg in Jensen Beach or his retired Secret Service neighbor. Or someone they knew. Whoever it was, maybe they'd done something like this before. Orchestrated the return of stolen items and collected money. Maybe it had worked once, twice, a hundred times. But not with the ruby slippers. When we were in Minnesota, we went to the FBI headquarters in Brooklyn Center, on the outskirts of Minneapolis. We sat in a conference room with Kevin Smith, the public information officer I had called and emailed so often. While we talked, the ruby slippers were sitting in evidence, a few floors below us, only 170 miles south of Grand Rapids, where this whole story started. I have received phone calls and emails from uh, reporters, producers, documentary filmmakers, novelists, and writers about updates on the Ruby Slippers case. I don't think a week has gone by where I haven't responded to at least one or two or three a week. So early on, it, uh, it became clear to me that this was going to be something different, I think, uh, than what we normally work on. And it certainly has grown since uh, the investigation has uh, gone on to a point where people are extremely interested in any type of resolution. We're those people... Maybe you are now, too. Finding yourself in a rabbit hole online about something you're surprised by, like the price of film memorabilia or Minnesota's prolific master thieves. The FBI's case won't last forever. And whatever the resolution winds up being, the ruby slippers will one day be released from evidence. But what will happen then? Where will the slippers go? Will they ever make it home? Next time, on the final episode of No Place Like Home. The law is not really good at protecting magic. There's so many people that are so curious about what happened, how it happened, why it happened, how they were found. You know, our officers are dealing with international terrorism. Art crime is frankly very low on the ladder. It's really apparent 
The Ruby Slippers don't want to be owned by anybody. Yeah, they would love for me to forfeit because they know they're very, very valuable. I think we could get to 10 million for the slippers. People do come here because they want to see the museum where the slippers were stolen. Is that a good or a bad thing? Well, I guess it proves that there's no such thing as bad publicity. No Place Like Home is a presentation, direction, and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio, in partnership with The Atavist Magazine. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran. Written by Ariel Ramshandani. Narrated by Ariel Ramshandani and me, Sayward Darby. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Produced by Paige Heimson and Valerie Thomas. Engineering, research, and production support by Adam Pershibu, Bill Schultz, Ian Mont, Bob Tabador, Patrick Antonetti, and Sean Cherry. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Hilary Schuff, Melissa Wester, and Meredith Tiger. Series artwork by Kurt Courtenay. Season one of No Place Like Home is based on reporting by Ariel Ramshandani for The Atavist Magazine. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.